Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast. Today on the pod, what role will the private sector play as the province announces further changes to tackle Metro Vancouver's housing challenges? Plus, closing shop. Businesses along a Broadway subway construction line shut down after suffering months of little business. Plus, get used to bossware in the age of remote work. We look at the rise of employer surveillance. That's all next on the Jazz Joha Show podcast. British Columbia now has confirmed 24 cases of new Omicron subvariant known as Kraken to date, making up roughly 5 to 6% of all genome sequenced samples uh, in the province. Announcement was made today by Health Minister Adrian Dix and Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry, who joins us now. Dr. Henry, thank you for speaking to us today. Good afternoon. Uh, I, I listened to the press conference, uh, and it seems to me overall that we are in a good space when it comes to the respiratory season at this time? I think I, I would agree with you there. We've made it through the peak of, of what we saw was a very early and unusual influenza season. Uh, we still have a lot of COVID out there. We still have um, a lot of respiratory illness out there, but it's not causing the severe illness that's putting that big strain on the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the issue of Kraken that I had just mentioned in the opening, um, how much of that concerns you in regards to the uh, 24 cases? How much of a concern is that? You know, and um, I know it's easy for people to remember a name like Kraken, but I think we also need to remember this is not some mythical sea monster that has magical powers. It's a yet another sub-variant of Omicron. And so it, it is concerning. We, we've been watching, we've been doing whole, whole genome sequencing, and there's about 40, 45 different sub-variants that are out there causing illness across British Columbia. The one that's causing most illness, that's over 90-some percent, is one called BQ1.1. And so that's a, a subset of, of what we're seeing, in, and you know, a very small number, so 24 genome sequencing. So that's the only way we can tell the difference between these different sub-variants. Um, so it's a very small percentage of what we're seeing. Obviously, we're watching it because it's caused some um, rapid increase in illness in places, particularly in places with lower vaccination rates but uh, in the U.S. But I think it's really important to know um, that any new variant that spreads more easily will be um, the most infectious one that we've seen to date, by definition. But there's no evidence that this subvariant is causing more severe illness. Mm-hmm. So, so the bigger concern evidence. is in the U.S. at this yeah. point when it comes to Kraken. It, it is, in, the, in where we're seeing it um, increase quite rapidly. It's uh, across Canada, it's still a very small percentage of what we're seeing and very small percentage of what we're seeing here in BC. Is it fair to say there's been an... Um an uptick in regards to the virus with young kids, and, and I'm going to assume that's because they're just out meeting people and perhaps they haven't seen some of their friends for a long time, that there is a bit bit of an uptick with young kids? Um, in terms of COVID, we're, we're actually seeing decreases across the board, mm-hmm. um, primarily because of vaccination, but we do see lots of respiratory viruses causing illness in children, um, and yes, they're very highly connected, and so are young adults with children. They're the people who have the most interactions, whether it's at work and, and with their children and social connections and social networks as well. So there has been quite a lot of, of RSV, influenza, some COVID, but also what we're seeing more than anything is a bunch of other cold viruses as well. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to focus on COVID just for a second. Um, there have been some folks who have been talking about still wanting mask mandates, that they feel that the province has moved too quickly uh, in regards to opening up uh, workplaces, w- opening up society. Uh, what would you say to that argument? Yeah, you know, mask mandates are, again, one of those heavy tools that very broad. And it, we are at a place where we have a lot of of protection. We've built these defenses primarily through vaccination and having that level of immunity that it doesn't, um, we're not in a place that requires us to have these very broad mandates and measures across the board. And, And I also would suggest that that as a single measure is not going to make um, it's not going to have a, a marked difference above the, the protection that we have from immunization, from people who've had some hybrid immunity, from vaccination and prior infection, and all of us doing those simple things that we can do ourselves to help prevent transmission to others. I, I guess one could argue China's zero COVID policy is an example of 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 you know just mask themselves and just zero tolerance for anything and at the same time keeping people indoors and you know in many cases infringing on their civil liberties um, is an example where zero covid and continually masking doesn't necessarily work either well exactly and and sadly it also has had a very detrimental impact on people's health and wellness. We know mental health issues, um, people have challenges getting food, all of those connections that we need to have with each other to support each other as families and communities. So it has had very negative health impacts as well. So, and as the virus changed and as immunity build in our community so that we have that, that protection, um, those types of extreme measures are no longer needed and the negative impacts that they have uh, are really important. Mm-hmm. My final question to you, you, you've been on you know, front and centre when it comes to COVID, the respiratory season as well. Uh, how are you able to stay positive uh, with, one would argue, relentless criticism uh, in an era where everybody has an opinion and everybody seems to be an expert due to Google or Facebook and everything else. How do you, does one, one like yourself stay positive uh, when you hear uh, relentless criticism and second-guessing of everything um, you have worked in your life in regards to expertise and getting to this point? How does one stay positive through all this? You know, I, I, I also, I really do believe that uh, people, when they're anxious or when they're fearful, um, sometimes they react with this type of, of uh, lashing out at people. And, and I'm one of those people. And I also think it's, it's very easy for people from their own perspective, um, like some of what we've seen out there, to stand from afar and criticize when they don't actually bear the weight of making the decisions which affect millions of people's lives. So, you know, I have a very strong team that I work with in public health across this province, across this country, and, uh, you know, part of what I do is making sure that I am confident in the data that we have and, and making sure we have the best information possible from as many different sources as possible, and, and that's that's, I guess, all we can do. But, you know, sometimes it weighs on me, absolutely. <laughs> and we, all of these decisions weigh on me. And knowing what's the best thing to do, it's a very uh, fine line, a very difficult balance to get. And 
um, you know, we try and do the best that we can to, to make to, to walk that that balance every day. Yeah. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for your time today. Enjoy your weekend. I know you had a very busy week. Uh, enjoy your weekend. We'll chat very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. As you know, yesterday, um, the B.C. government, in uh, some would say an unusual uh, uh, step, uh, uh, introduced uh, a new uh, policy looking uh, to help nonprofits. It was a $500 million rental fund, uh, which allows nonprofit housing groups to acquire rental buildings. Now, Premier David Eby said the fund, which has long been asked for by housing advocates, both nationally and in B.C., should allow nonprofits uh, to leverage purchases of potentially thousands of apartments and protect renters from eviction or big rent hike. Well, Mr. Eby has not yet uh, not yet announced progress on another plank of his uh, housing platform, which is to pass a law ensuring right of first refusal for non-profit housing societies looking to buy low-rise buildings up for sale, therefore preventing a bidding war with the private sector. Such a policy has been adopted in the city of Montreal. Now, I asked that specific question of Housing Minister Ravi Kalon yesterday when he joined us on the show. Take a listen. Uh, we're certainly considering that. We're considering a whole host of other things as well. Uh, Premier Eby signaled that today in the press conference as well. Uh, we know Quebec has done that and done it successfully. Uh, and so, yes, we are considering that. Uh, but we're going to be launching a refresh housing strategy in the coming months. And in that, you'll see a whole host of initiatives. Uh, again, Premier Eby has got a very, very ambitious plan uh, to take on the housing challenge. And we'll be able to lay out some of those actions uh, in, in the coming months. That was Housing Minister Ravi Kailan, who joined us yesterday. Joining us now is Corinne Kirkpatrick, BC Liberal MLA for West Vancouver Capilano, and uh, the Shadow Minister for Housing and uh, Child Care. Corinne, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jazz. Happy to be here. Uh, let me get to that specific question. Uh, do you think it's a good idea uh, to give nonprofits, um, some would say, first dibs on uh, private sector property potentially, uh, or do you think this is going to lead to a lot of trouble in regards to how the housing system works? Uh, it's so complicated, and um, the minister had uh, referred to Montreal. It's a very, very different system that they've got there. Uh, you've got to look at is this going to require um, uh, uh, owners of complexes that are rental, are they going to have to join some kind of registry? Uh, is there going to be a requirement then for them to give notice to government prior to actually listing something? Um, you know, which rental properties would be subject to the first right of refusal? So there's, there's a number of issues there, but then it also stalls the market. When something comes onto the market, uh, what is the, the amount of time that is going to be required for a nonprofit or for government to do due diligence and then, and then, uh, you know, come in with an offer? So uh, many, many questions. I understand the reasoning for it, but it's much more complex than simply saying first right of refusal. I mean, part of this argument is that, um, um, you know, uh, real estate investment trusts, pension funds, uh, private equity firms are buying up 
rental properties because they provide a good return on investments over the long term for their uh, members and that, uh, you know, renters are losing out. Uh, Do you think that this is as big of an issue as some have said? I know in the United States it plays a big role. You're seeing in other parts of Canada as well. Do you think it's as pronounced as some are saying in regards to impacting long-term renters and many of them uh, not being able to stay in places they've stayed for a long time? Well, I think we've seen that that does happen in the market. I mean, that that certainly is a piece of it. Um, But the private sector has an important role to play. And what government talked about yesterday, I mean, trying to get $500 out the door isn't going to fix a broken rental market. Um, And there's only $500 so that money is going to run out pretty quickly. If that money runs out and, and nonprofits just simply aren't able to leverage those doctors to, uh, daughter, dollars to purchase. It, it is going to be left to those pension funds and to those private investors to be investing in purpose-built rental and investing in rental. So uh, you can't come in, come in and kind of play around with the market because you might discourage uh, those investors that can provide very, um, very good and, uh, you know, a, quite a, a few rental properties, you can't discourage them from trying to come into the market. Do you think this is the wrong way to go then, if this is what they're considering, that the, the that you're actually going to discourage, or at the very least, government is stepping in to manipulate a market that over the long term, this is not healthy for the market, but the minute you scare away private sector investors, uh, you, you can't solve the core issue, which is still supply. Uh, it is absolutely supply. And if the Premier had met his uh, commitments to building this 114,000 additional rental units in uh, the period of time that they've been in there, rather than just, uh, you know, having 11,000 built, you know, would this be as big of an issue? So they have to continue to build. And government has this responsibility, yes, to be in that affordable uh, rental uh, arena. Um, But they just haven't been keeping up to their commitments to actually provide the housing. So uh, don't get me wrong. I believe that we have got to invest in making sure that we are retaining affordable housing um, uh, units that are currently on the market. We don't want to be displacing people, but we can't put so many policies in place that it will discourage everyone else from coming into the rental market. We've seen that that's happening with a number of the other requirements. And, um, you know, every time you, you add regulation to the rental market, you're losing investment in the rental market. Yeah, Corinne, uh, this is going to be an issue that uh, will play out uh, very quickly over the next few months uh, because I think there's another announcement by the Housing Minister and the Premier on Monday. We look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you so much for your time today. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Jazz. You as well. Let's talk a little bit about the Broadway subway project. Now, once complete, the subway project will move passengers from VCC's Clark Skytrain station to Arbutus uh, in approximately 11 minutes. So uh, it's going to be great. Get through to the B line eventually, uh, and it'll be great. But to get there, of course, requires a significant amount of construction. Over the past year, we've seen hearing and seeing and hearing uh, from small business owners in Vancouver who say they have fewer customers and are making less money. 
And of course, it's not just because of the pandemic. Construction on the line is well underway. Some vehicle lanes and street parking along West Broadway between Main and Arbuza Streets have been eliminated as a result. Um, now, Broadway's subway construction is different from the cut and cover method that devastated businesses along the Canby Corridor when the Canada Line was constructed ahead of the 2010 Winter Olympics. This time around, vehicle decks are being built uh, to let cars travel above while uh, boarding machines create the subway tunnel underground. Now, the project is scheduled to, uh, for completion in 2025, and street parking will be reduced until then. Well, the ongoing congestion, lack of parking, fencing, and construction itself is leading to small businesses shutting down. Now, Sandy Sanga has owned a subway station for 13 years on West Broadway uh, near Camby Street. The pandemic made it difficult to run her business, but she managed to stay afloat. But sadly... She's run into a different challenge this time, which, of course, is the Broadway line construction. Uh, Sandy will be shutting down her business in just a couple of weeks because of ongoing construction that has devastated her business. We spoke to Sandy a couple of hours ago. Take a listen to her story. My business is too slow since COVID. COVID finished then like a, a, a subway project for a SkyTrain station. Mm-hmm. We are like a, too slow. And too difficult here because everything closed from my front of Broadway, mm-hmm. and like every business too slow. Uh, prior to COVID, your business was running fine. You were able to meet your bills and deal with your costs. Before COVID, is very good. Uh, and so you were you were selling enough sandwiches and drinks and cookies uh, to to pay. Yeah, your bills. everything like sub yeah subways yeah everything salad wrap sandwich drinks cookies breakfast. Uh, and uh, yeah. and then once COVID hit, there just there wasn't any business uh, in and around that the area that you're located in. Yeah, yeah. COVID hit too, but should be okay. But after COVID, like. Then subway project lines, mm-hmm. they had too much. How much, how many customers have you lost? Is it a, it's like a 50% reduction? Too many. No, we, we almost over 75% business lost. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. we, able- make only, we make only per day 300 to 400 per day now and weekend two slot, only 200. Like every week, we make only 2,000, around 2,000 now. Per week. And, and are you okay sharing? How much rent do you pay? Almost 5,700 per, per month. Per month. Everything, management, rent, and management. So it doesn't leave with you, you, you with a lot at the end of it. We uh, don't get anything. Uh, we pay full amount of loan and everything. Mm-hmm. And like electrician, hydro, everything so have you have you have you been breaking even or you've lost money we lost money i i working free for like since this project i free working here every day 10 to 12 hours and so you don't pay yourself no and and we have... get like we we get personal money put rent and pay them my employees now we don't have any employees so it's you, and you have uh, you have somebody else working there as well. I'm assuming. Uh, just my son, sometime, but he got other job right now, so I work myself. Uh, are you able to share how much money you think you've lost because of the the SkyTrain project? 
we lost too much. We we closed Subway. We we lost like five lakh. Five hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, because I we everything now is garbage. Uh, now you're shutting down, I believe, at 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 the end of um, um, March. Uh, so yeah. are you going to be selling all of your 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 equipment that you have there in the shop? No, we we because Subway told me they they are too old. So anybody you know get this. So the, for, uh, this thing. So the, yeah. the 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 equipment to to to, to bake the bread, all of that, yeah. that that's just too old. You can't yeah. you can't really get yeah, any money for just, it. No, 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 no. And have you asked the city or the provincial government for any compensation during this construction to help you out? No, many people do, but like subway, like uh, city, no answering anything. No, give me anything right now. And have you reached out to the city for help? Uh, because uh, my like so many business around here, they do and cooled me, but they didn't give anything. And have you reached out to the provincial government? Uh, no, no, nothing. No, because no. it's it's the provincial government that is funding it. But I mean, you're working with with the municipal with the regional government as well. Yeah. So, so for you, it, you, the the only thing left to do for you is to is to shut down. Yeah. Because I can't hold it right now. Uh, you seem very composed answering my questions. Um, there's got to be tremendous, there's got to be some anger on your part that you said your business was running fine, COVID hit, and you had to cope. Uh, but it wasn't COVID, but it's ultimately the SkyTrain construction that is now forcing you to shut yeah. down your restaurant. Yeah. Are you angry? Huh? Are you angry? No, angry, but... Because we put my own money too, I pay the rent, so we we losing everything. So this is why we closing. I don't want more uh, more something like my health is no good, mm -hmm. like well, that. Yeah, I I appreciate uh, your time today. I know you're going through a lot, uh, Sandy. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. I love that. The People's Court. Maybe this is the People's Court. Uh, this is a segment uh, that we were just talking this morning at the, at the morning meeting. And uh, we started talking a little bit about food prices, but the conversation actually began after our colleague Joe Bennett, of course, host of the Joe Bennett Show, was talking about uh, going to the Hillcrest Community Centre, uh, Girling Centre actually, um, last weekend uh, with some f uh, family and somebody had ordered some bur a burger and the uh, server, I guess, informed them uh, that uh, because of the higher price of lettuce, it's been they've replaced the lettuce with spinach. So that got us thinking and talking about you know, the impact of, of inflation. Now, food prices, according to the food, Canada Food Price Report, for 2023, they expect food prices uh, to increase by 7% in 2023. 
three. Food, uh, the average food, food bill for a family of four will be $16,288, roughly, for 2023. That'll be an increase of $1,065 above 2022. Uh, Joining me now are our producers, Ryan Lee Hall and Stephen Chang. We spent a lot of time talking about Jill and the price of lettuce. I don't want to call this segment Lettuce Watch, but maybe that's what we should call it, because I think, obviously, inflation plays a significant role, is having a huge impact on our audience and and fellow Canadians as well. Right, let me start with you first of all. You did a um, a segment for us, you produced a segment for us, I think it was three months ago, something like that, right, in regards to the price of food, specifically lettuce? Yes, it was November 2022, and uh, that's kind of when we first heard about all the rising, skyrocketing prices of lettuce. Yes, lettuce. Jazz, it's lettuce. I know. Hey, don't have to tell me, poor Jill. They had they replaced it with spinach. That's just a crime. I mean, well, wait, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> it's spinach. You, you don't like spinach? It's okay. I mean, I get it's not the same as lettuce, but I mean, on like, a burger. I mean, come it's on, fine. it's all right. It's okay. You're gonna do it's it once th- in a while, but yeah. I, I know we all love our lettuce, and we all can't live without our lettuce. Uh, you know. <sighs> The prices have just been skyrocketing, but today we kind of found maybe a little bit of a difference. Let's start off with November. Yeah. So November of 2022, I spoke with uh, the president of Stong's Market in North Vancouver. His name is Brian Bradley, and I asked him, how much are your lettuce prices right now? So the highest price we would have right now is six ninety nine for a head of romaine lettuce. Oh. Normal times, that'd be under three dollars. Would be two forty nine, two ninety nine. When we have local product in the summer, uh, we're generally around that two forty nine price range. Six ninety nine. Six ninety nine in November. Yes. Uh, now we uh, had our good friend Stephen Chang um, calling around to get a a, a, a lettuce. Uh, I guess an average price for lettuce uh, in in the Lower Mainland. Uh, Stephen, who did you call? Lettuce Watch twenty twenty three. Hello, Jazz. <laughs> I had to do my academic research today, and I called seven <laughs> of our top grocery chains here in the Lower Mainland. Okay. So we've got Save On Foods. Price smart. Actually, you know what, Ryan? Can we get that uh, people's court theme going on in the background there? I want to make this more intense. Yeah, yeah. Let's get it going. There Let's we go. Okay, so save on foods. Price smart. Walmart. Mm-hmm. IGA. Yeah. Superstore. No frills and Safeway. Okay, if six ninety nine is our high water mark for Ooh. for prices for lettuce, and and like I said, this is all instigated by Jill Bennett and her um, uh, uh, the burgers that uh, someone member of her family had. So six ninety nine. So what kind of prices are we seeing? You know what, Jazz? With six ninety nine being the maximum, our forecast is looking a bit better. Let's start with Save On Foods. Green leaf <laughs> lettuce. Yeah. Four forty nine for a head. Okay. Romaine, okay. four ninety nine. And iceberg lettuce, five ninety nine. Whoa. Mm-mm. Save on, not so much, huh? I don't mm, know. No. What do you think? Not so much. All right, what else? What you, price Mart? Let's go to Price Mart. So Price Mart does have a deal today. Uh Green Leaf normally is four forty nine, but for today only, Jazz, two ninety nine. Oh, we're gonna pretend like it's twenty twenty one. That's right. Romaine, <laughs> four ninety nine usually. Today only two ninety nine. Oh, okay. And iceberg lettuce, five ninety nine. Still five ninety nine. Oh, okay. So still relatively on the high side, that's for sure. Okay, what about Walmart? Let's go to Walmart. Save money, live better, and you can live better with Green Leaf at three forty seven. Oh, okay. Romaine lettuce at three ninety seven, and iceberg lettuce also at three ninety seven. Not bad, not right. bad. And then you got IGA too. There you go. Let's go over to IGA now. Let's walk down Robson Street. Green Leaf three ninety nine. Yeah. Romaine lettuce three ninety nine. 
Iceberg lettuce, four ninety nine. Four ninety nine. All right. Okay. So that's uh, you know it's it's sort of mid range. And then I think the last one is Superstore. Uh, we got Superstore as well. Uh, green leaf is four forty nine. Romaine is four ninety nine. And iceberg lettuce is five dollars. Wow. So we've gone from if you think Ryan's high watermark of six ninety nine in November. So you've got a couple of deals two ninety nine at Price Smart for green leaf and romaine. But that's just for today. But generally it's four forty nine. That's right. Yeah. And the highest we've seen is five ninety nine. So somewhere around. Four dollars to about six dollars, so it's still on the high side, isn't it? Still pretty much on the high side. It's not as bad as, as it was in November, as Ryan was saying. But you know, we're, we're still up there, Jazz. Still yeah. up there. I don't mm-hmm. know why. Do you, why it's lettuce is somehow taken off? <laughs> we focus on it so much. I mean, it's 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 still uh, in the grand scheme of things not ex- super expensive, but it is much more expensive than what you, we were used to paying. Obviously, that's right. Uh, why do you think we, this has taken off, Ryan? In your mind, why, why focus on lettuce so much? We can't live without lettuce, Jazz. Yeah, maybe you that's use it. it. Uh, you know what? Next week, maybe we'll take a look at pears. We'll do avocados. No, I think, I think we we should actually keep make this a weekly segment until it hits two ninety nine or very close to two ninety nine. We should have a weekly lettuce watch. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, it's more attractive than the uh, chasing gas prices. So you know what? Let's do it for a change. Let's follow <laughs> lettuce prices, yes. Let's follow lettuce prices. Somebody said we should do guacamole. Who had the name Guac Watch? Guac Watch, Watch twenty twenty three. But you know what? Let's let's just casually do this for our audience every week or so, just to just to see what lettuce costs are like. I think because I think it's important because at the end of the day. We're still expecting food prices to go up 7%, as I said, this year. And uh, the cost of groceries for 2023 is supposed to go up over $1,065 on average for a family of four from $16,000 for uh, from 2022. So it gives you a sense that uh, things are not over when it comes to inflation. So we'll keep doing that. Thanks, guys. Thanks, uh, Jazz. I think our co- colleague Tally here just fainted over the price of the lettuce. Oh, my God. Let me check on her. <laughs> Tally, are you okay? Oh, my God. Stephen, Ryan, thank you so much. That's our producer, Stephen Chang and Ryan Lee Hall. We're going to keep an eye on lettuce because I think it is something important to watch uh, in regards to the inflation cost. Well, a tribunal has ordered a BC accountant to pay her former employer more than $2,600 after a tracking software showed she engaged in time theft while working from home. The decision released this week by the Civil Resolution Tribunal shows the woman made a claim of $5,000 to cover unpaid wages and severance pay, arguing that uh, she had been fired without cause last March. Uh, but the employer had submitted a counterclaim with evidence showing a 50-hour di- uh, discrepancy between her timesheets and actively recorded uh, by the tracking software on her work uh, computer. The ruling orders her to pay the $2,600 plus interest in debt and damages for time theft. Now, COVID-19 has pushed millions of people to work from home, and a flock of companies offering software for tracking workers has swooped in to pitch their products to employers across the country. Now, the services often sound relatively innocuous. Some vendors bill their tools as automatic time tracking or workplace analytics software. Essentially, it's bossware, where employers can log every click and keystroke uh, and uh, uh, know exactly what you're doing. Joining us now to talk a little bit about employer surveillance is Jeff Mason, Employment and Human Rights Lawyer at Miller Thompson LLP. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Jazz. How unique uh, is this ruling? It's it's a very unique ruling. Um, the first of its kind that I'm aware of, um, you don't see it uh, commonly, certainly not in BC um, or, or in other jurisdictions in Canada. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a few re- few reasons for that. I think first of all, I mean, often the 
the value of the claim, the, the amount of wages that an employer might seek to recover uh, is often dwarfed by the, the cost of litigation. So I think that kind of explains in part why, why this uh, particular case um, arose, arose in the context of a counterclaim. So the, the employee had brought the claim against the employer first. They were going to have to incur costs to defend the claim. So th that might explain why you saw this. But, I mean, there's other reasons as well. It, it's often very difficult to, to prove that um, uh, the employee hasn't performed the work that they were required to perform to quantify the amount of losses. Um, and if you make that claim as an employer and, and you don't succeed with it, you can be liable for additional aggravated or punitive damages. So, so there are some risks with it, but um, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether or not this decision is going to open the door to, uh, to more like it in the future. Uh, how common um, is Bossware, this, this uh, you know, employer software that keeps an eye on you? You may be away from your boss working from home, but obviously based on the evidence presented uh, in, in, in this case, uh, it looks like the employer had software that watched or tracked uh, what the employee was doing on the company computer or laptop. Um, first of all, is that increasingly more common, this software, this Bossware sometimes it's referred to as? Yeah, it's it's becoming much more common, certainly over the last couple of years. Um, I don't think we have you know really concrete data on, on exactly how much it's increased, but uh, certainly I can, you know, just speak to um, uh, what I've seen with my clients. It's become an, a much more common request and, and much more frequently implemented. I think that's largely due to the increase of remote work, um, you know, with employees not working in the office so much, employers aren't in a position to, uh, to monitor them uh, in person. So it, it's in part just a response to, uh, to remote work, but um, I think, you know, changes in technology as, as different tools have developed um, for, for employee monitoring. It's just provided employ, employers with, with more options. Um, now, while, while it's becoming more common, I think it's important to point out that there's many different types of bossware out there. Um, you know, on the one hand, some forms of it are, are very innocuous. You know, you have bossware that just monitors email usage, internet usage, um, time tracking software. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, some fairly invasive types of monitoring that, you know, monitor keystrokes, GPS, um, uh, some that even uh, monitor the actual uh, employee's computer screen. So there's different shapes and sizes of it, but uh, we're seeing employers use it much more frequently. Do employees working from home have the right to say no I'm doing my job, look at the end result, but you will not and you cannot and I will not allow you to track me. Can, does an employee have a right to do that or say that to the boss? Well, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Employees certainly have a, a right to object to it. Now, whether or not that's always going to mean that that prevents an employer from, uh, from monitoring the employee um, is still an open question. So uh, certainly, you know, if an employee does consent to, um, to some type of employee surveillance, that's going to be fine legally. And, and I would certainly recommend uh, in almost all cases, employers should first try to seek consent of, of employees. But even in certain circumstances where employees might object to it, employers are permitted to monitor uh, without consent. For example, if, if they're conducting an investigation into a particular employee and, and seeking the employee's consent could, uh, could undermine the investigation. Um, 
privacy protections also don't extend to certain types of information. So uh, employee work product, for example, there's no, there's no privacy protections with respect to that. So you know, I, I wouldn't conflate an employee's work with their work product. Um, work, you know, broadly speaking, is a, is a much broader concept than their work product. But you know, if, if you're just monitoring um, an employee's actual work product, things like their emails, um, usually that's going to be outside the scope of, of privacy protections. But um, I would say employees are certainly in a, in a better position uh, if, if, um, uh, to prevent themselves from being monitored if they object to it. But uh, even in those cases, um, employers can still have the right to, uh, to monitor employees' work. So for employees, and we, I know it's still in the news, uh, public sector uh, employees, many of them balking at coming back to, to the traditional um, uh, job back at the office. Um, this is, and if you are choosing to, to work at home or if you can work from home, this is the new normal now that there will be software that um, will track you and can track you and it does require you to say yes, but it ultimately uh, it's something employers probably will have and will use moving forward if, if there is a hybrid work situation. Absolutely. I would I, I anticipate this being uh, being the new normal. I, I just don't see the, the genie being put back in the bottle. And I mean, as I said, it, it is, I think, you know, a, a fairly reasonable trade-off um, in the context of um, uh, remote work and work from home arrangements. So as long as those continue to persist, I, I think we're going to continue to see um, some type of employer uh, monitoring uh, at play, but and I think you know the other thing is as long as it's um, as we see it can continue to kind of grow this pervasively, um, as long as you know employers kind of across the board are going to be implementing similar measures at least in remote work arrangements, um, it's going to give employers a lot more leverage in implementing these these types of monitoring arrangements because it's not going to give employees as much of an option to say okay well I'll I'll go work here if we're, where they're not monitoring employees. If, if most employers are monitoring, it, it's going to give um, employers all that more leverage to continue to do that. Jeff, thank you for your time today, my friend. Thanks for having me, Jeff. If you're downtown this weekend, you may run into participants from the Lyft Cannabis Conference. The conference expects about 125 exhibitors and 7,000 people to attend the Vancouver event this weekend. It's the first conference since 2020, just before COVID-19 restrictions uh, chilled the trade show circuit. Now, cannabis was legalized over four years ago. Since then, Canada's cannabis industry is starting to come down from a post-legalization high, dealing with many significant challenges. Joining me now to talk about uh, the outlook for BC's cannabis industry is Dr. Paul Clark, professor from the School of Business and Economics at Thompson Rivers University. Dr. Clark, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jazz. Uh, give me your, um, st- your thoughts in regards to the present state of the industry. Where do you think it's at? Well, I think you summarized it fairly well just now that um, it's gone through a few uh, iterations. Um, about four years ago, prior to legalization, for example, the um, outlook was very, very positive. I think there was a lot of um, expectation that there was going to be high profits for invest- investors in the industry. Um, I think um, the October 2018 legalization was uh, anticlimactic to say the least. Mm-hmm. It was very um, uneventful. 
Um, subsequent to that, I think um, there hasn't really been the, to my understanding, Jazz, the um, sales volumes that were initially anticipated uh, here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And do you think some of that, how much of that you think is based on government wanting to go slow as well, that they didn't want to uh, open up the market so fast, so quickly, uh, and and they wanted, there was a go-slow approach when it comes to policy, uh, waiting to see the public's response. How much do you think a lot of that has to do with just government's response and its go-slow uh, view? Yeah, I think I think it played a, a large role in the uh, current market situation. Um, the fact that, for example, cannabis organizations are not able to brand, to market directly to consumers mm-hmm. um, has played a significant role. Um, similarly, well, I think that's the primary factor that the cannabis brands are not able to create demand at a consumer level yet. Uh, you talked about uh, a bit of oversupply. I guess there was a bit of Wild West mentality when the approval happened and so much money, venture capital money, came into the market in regards to greenhouses, in regards to companies that had set up. There was a bit of a Wild West um, uh, mindset, wasn't there? Yeah, it was kind of like uh, it had shades of the dot-com, the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2000s dot-com, it seemed as though... It was um, hugely a lot of potential in the market, and then uh, it kind of fell flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think it's it's been able to make a dent in the illegal market, or do you think those producers are still able to provide cannabis? Uh, some would say there's more potent. Uh, some have actually referred to the legalized marijuana or cannabis as uh, corporate pot or uh, government cannabis, that it's not of the same quality. Do you think it's been able to make a dent in the illegal market? Uh, Well, I hear two questions there. The first um, question is, what's the current size of the illegal market? And the second question is, the potency levels of the regulated suppliers. Is Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, Okay, so I think the illegal market, the illegal suppliers are still holding on to a lot of their customer base. I think there was um, consumers that did have their preferred suppliers and continue to purchase from those preferred suppliers. In regard, yeah, please continue. I, I don't think that's changed. In terms of the... Um, potency of the legal vendors, I think that it's as potent as the the uh, illegal vendor's product is. I mean, it's, it's also much easier as consumers to discern the type and the potency of the product that's being purchased. Hmm. Uh- my final question to you, do you think uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, cannabis cafes, similar to what you see in Amsterdam, there are conversations mm-hmm. about psychedelics, which is a completely different market, a uh, different um, sort of avenue in those things. You're talking about the retail side. Do you think things will speed up now as the market rationalizes? You've taken out some of the players, some of the supply. 
Do you see the market moving faster now, or do you think it's still going to be moving relatively slow in regards to acceptance and growth, most importantly? I, so from the government side, I think the regulations will continue to move slowly but progressively. Mm-hmm. I think um, the current government has managed the situation well. Uh, as in any situation like this, the government is learning. The regulators are taking a cautious approach. Though I do believe from the consumer perspective, the consumer side of the situation, that that market will continue to develop. Um, the psychedelics you've referred to, I think, will gain acceptance. Um and we can expect more development in that area. In keeping with, um, I would expect in the short term for the government, for example, to allow cannabis cafes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's a fascinating topic that is ever evolving. Look forward to chatting with you in the future on this uh, on this uh, topic as well, uh, Doctor Clark. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Jazz. My pleasure. You're welcome. Lots going on in pop culture this week. We had another week of opinions, experts, open line wisdom, and hot takes. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help explain the week that was. It's time for the wrap. Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is the wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's. Well, this week we look at federal public servants being ordered back to work and no Michelin star for you. Our rap panel discusses their worst restaurant experience. Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halib is a TV reporter and radio host and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She is an author and broadcaster. Leah and Sarah, welcome. Hi, guys. Hey, kids. How are you? Very good. <laughs> Half an hour to go. We're all going to be done. So let's focus on the issue of the moment. We're here. I'm here at work. You guys are working from home. Well, let's talk about the public service just for, for a moment. The federal government says repercussions for public servants who refuse to return to in-person work will be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. Starting Monday, all federal employees who are still working from home will begin the transition back to in-person work. Uh, Treasury Board President Mona Fortier announced last month that all departments must bring workers back to the office at least two to three times a week um, by the end of March. Leah, let me start with you first and foremost. What do you think of this? There seems to be a tug-of-war, a fight uh, between the employers and employees. Do you think this is the right thing to do, ask federal employees to do it the old-fashioned way, which is come back to the office? Well, I mean, I think people working from home really tend to be getting more work done because I think when you're at home and you're working, you're thinking, if I don't get this done, the work's not going to get done. I think people that are going to the office, they're kind of slacking off more. You know, like I remember when I go to an office, I'd be like, "Eh, I'm going to go get some water. I'm going to go chit chat with so-and-so, see how their weekend was. You know, you kind of killed more time because you were around people. So I think making them come back to work is kind of sucks because I think they'll get more work done at home. That's just what I've noticed and I've noticed with myself, but I mean, I could be crazy about that, but I mean, they'll save money. They don't have to pay for as much electricity, right? Mm -hmm. And all the office supplies. So I don't know if, if, 
it's, if it's two days, okay. But I mean, if it's like three days, four days, what's the point then? You know, yeah. you might as well have them back full time. Sarah, your thoughts on this? I, you're a real estate agent, so you're, uh, you know, you do have an office, but you're out and about a lot. What do you think of this get back to work order from the federal government? Well, first of all, never give Lee an office job because that's pretty much <laughs> just, just a notice to employers because that's going to yes. suck. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to say because I used to go into the office all the time and yeah. a lot of people in my office don't. And, and I've, I, I moved offices just before the pandemic started. Uh, the new office that I'm in, we're actually kind of separated from the main area so I can't really socialize as much as I would normally mm-hmm. and part of and part of that is is actually good because you know in real estate you do want to actually keep in touch with people talk to people find out what's going on all that kind of stuff it actually behooves you because we're all individual contractors to keep up with what's going on in the office but having said that I mean city halls have tried this before I remember we've talked about this before Vancouver City Hall tried to go to a four-day week which is all great for everybody that's working the four days, but for the rest of us that are trying to maybe get like a permit from City Hall yeah. or pick up a, a decal or something like that, it's not going to work. I mean, clearly par- paramedics can't work from home. I mean, that would be kind yeah. of odd. Same mm-hmm. with firefighters, police officers. Doctors. There's, you know, <laughs> yeah, exa- most federal workers actually do have to work to a certain extent from from home or rather from out, outside of the office, like outside of the home. Things like I mean, maybe Revenue Canada people, though I have to say that was weird when I had to phone Revenue Canada during the pandemic and they say, we're going to route you through to somebody's cell phone. And I'm thinking, I'm talking to <laughs> a federal employee about my taxes on their cell phone. You better, and they're on their patio. Weird. You, you, be, you better yeah. bet they're in their pajamas, too. I'm calling it right Three now. Well, I mean, I don't care what they're wearing, but I kind of get freaked out about the fact that they've well, got my home. In, they're using their home number. Yeah. Their yeah. cell phone number. I'm sure they're. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it was interesting. We, we did a segment earlier today with uh, Jeff Mason. Um, he is a labor and human rights lawyer. We're looking at boss which is the, oh, the rise of this uh, software, yeah, basically spyware. <laughs> yeah. And so this woman sued uh, her company, she's an accountant, and for $5,000 for uh, unpaid wages. And uh, when they went to this tribunal, uh, the, maybe she didn't realize or maybe she didn't realize the software was so good, the company said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you've billed us for 50 extra hours, then you shouldn't have. Because according That's to crazy. the software, you did nothing. And to my understanding in the evidence, there was also um, uh, evidence that said, well, you had Disney Plus on as well. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Could you imagine lawyers would freak out? Yeah, oh, well, think about about it, like, no. So she's stuff. she's now had to, has to pay her employer, former employer, twenty six hundred dollars. So not well, not only she's got so could they tap into your your camera and then see that you're not no, working? but like, just what based, else could they do based on you know? your like, based crazy. on clicks uh, <laughs> where you are? In, they, yeah. yeah, because that laptop oh, is not creepy. your property, their property. And yeah. if you want to watch Disney Plus, maybe use your own laptop. They can't maybe keep an eye on that. Yeah, so, while you're on the other one. But do you, do you, but do you, I think there's a point there. Like, I mean, if if not, and she may not be representative most, and a lot of folks have gotten used to this this lifestyle where you know you can drop your kids off at daycare. You're not commuting as much. You're not using gas, as Leah said. But you gotta think. There's a lot of abuse out there, Leah. Don't you think when people oh. at home, you can't keep an eye on them? Uh, I just True. don't, I personally don't believe people are more productive. I get the daycare issue. I get the not wanting to commute. Perhaps you're more efficient. And and there's going to be a lot think, of those people, right? 
But do you think that people at the office are 100% working too? You don't think that they're like texting and they're watching quickly on something and then you walk in the room and then they click it off? Sure, but the bosses bosses are around. They're keeping an eye on that, number one. And I think there is a value. Tell me if I'm wrong here, Sarah. Of, and certainly in our business, maybe it's a bit unique, but in the sense of the, that camaraderie, uh, picking oh. up conversations, mm. it, I've, we've we've done stories just based on you know hearing bits and pieces of conversation once in a while. It's been really really good segments we've produced. Uh, I think that's part of it as well, isn't there's a there's a corporate culture that you want to sustain as well. Well, I think it's just healthy too to get out and and see people because I mean, God knows during the pandemic, I you know would make conscious effort just to get out because I mean, I was talking to the dogs and weirdly enough, they could not answer me. So that was <laughs> that was when I realized I need to get out and get you know some socialization. And I mean, again, luckily my job does require going places and actually meeting with people. But I mean, certainly I you know I do miss and and I funnily enough was talking to some people in my office today about this. And one of them, who's a very successful realtor and leads a team in my office, Mm -hmm. he said he feels more productive coming into the office every day because he, you know, he can concentrate, all that kind of stuff. It it helps that he's got three young kids, so he probably is trying to get the hell out of the house. (laughs) That's the point. He has three young kids. I mean, that's, but, you know, I mean, they're they're older now, but, but nonetheless, I think that he sort of finds it that he can focus more. He's much more productive when he's in an office setting as opposed to, you know, maybe wandering down the hall with a bowl of Wheaties and going, "Oh, I wonder what's on ESPN." <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, I'm, I, I think the flexibility is great for for employees, but I I do think there's going to be a great push by employers in 2023 to get folks back to work, not just federal. You know who? But, I'll tell you who's really going to be pushing for it. It's going to be com- commercial realtors because there's going to be a lot of commercial space going up mm. for lease otherwise. And true, on a yeah. totally different note, I mean, there's been stories in the news about places like downtown Victoria, Vancouver, that are a lot quieter now because people aren't working from home. It's affecting realtors, excuse me, retailers. Yep. Good Lord, what am I trying to say? And businesses downtown because there aren't the same amount of people the, coming into the downtown. Yeah. Exactly. The foot traffic just isn't there. So it's going to be very interesting how things uh, um, uh, sort of um, roll out in the next uh, few weeks uh, on the federal employee side. Well, coming up next, our wrap panel share their worst restaurant experience. That's next on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to our rap panel, Leah Halive. She's a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels, a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Now, as you know, this week we have been giving away gift cards to uh, Dine Out Vancouver and uh, some, to some great restaurants as well. We've been hearing from you as well. Uh, you've been sharing your stories of your most memorable meals and uh, the meals here uh, in the U.S. I think one caller, caller we had from Japan calling about a great meal that they had in Tokyo. Uh, so some great stories. And like I said, uh, we've given away some gift cards to some great restaurants here locally. But in the competitive food industry, every restaurant needs to be on top of its game that we know. But there's also, but that's also why the most memorable dining experiences can also be the worst experiences ever for some. From undercooked food to lousy customer service, many a meal has been ruined. I'm sure everybody has a story. So I thought we'd hear from our uh, rap panel in regards to their worst uh, meal uh, at a restaurant. Let me start with you, Leah. Is there a particular <laughs> meal or a particular <laughs> restaurant? I don't know if you want to mention the restaurant, but a particular meal that uh, you really didn't enjoy. 
Okay, I have another story I have to say, and Sarah will like it too. But the but for the Bourse meal, I just had it recently. What? It was um, a Christmas party. Yeah, so we went out for Christmas, and I went to this restaurant. I won't name it. It was in a casino. And um, I ordered, because I'm the vegetarian, a tofu bowl. Uh-huh. So I get the tofu bowl, and it's one server for 35 of us, okay? So oh, wow. I'm what? eating it, and I'm like, what's – yeah, I know. And I'm like, what is missing here? Well, there was veggies. There were – it was the tofu wasn't the greatest, but there was no teriyaki sauce. I looked at it, and I thought, should I pour my wine in it just to moisten it a bit? Because I was choking <laughs> on it. I couldn't swallow it. So I had to pull the server aside, and I'm like, hey – um, can you get me a cup of teriyaki sauce? And she looked at it and she's like, oh my God, somebody forgot it. I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> so that was just this Christmas, by the way. Oh, wow. And then a quick other story. I, I don't know if you remember the Pearl, but they're White Rock called the Pearl. Loved oh, it. Yeah, this is great. years ago. And I know you know this, Sarah, because I was sitting there a long time ago and I heard somebody laughing and having a great time. And I'm like, I know that laugh. I turned around and guess who it was? Miss Sarah Daniels. <laughs> yes. well, why didn't you say hello yet, jackass? For heaven's sake. Didn't, we didn't know each other then. This was long that time ago. That wouldn't have mattered. I would have, I would have just thought that maybe I didn't know you would have been mortified and tried to play along. No, I was like, she's having such a freaking good time. I love this woman. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Sarah, how about you? Is there a particular moment uh, where you just didn't enjoy the experience or a particular meal? Well, the, the the fact that I have the the palate of a five year old boy, um, really <laughs> macaroni and cheese. I'm I, I have I'm a, a woman of very simple taste, like literally. I mean, I have popcorn for dinner. My dogs eat better than I do. So it's it's usually not about the food. It would have to be pretty outstandingly crappy. I can't think of anything that catches my mind. It's usually not even the restaurant personnel. Like I mean, in, in a bad experience because, like Leah said. A lot of these places are understaffed right now, and you've really mm-hmm. got a feel for them. And, you know, they're they're doing their very best. It's usually other people in the restaurant, oh. like people that let their kids crawl all over the place and throw food. <laughs> I had once a confrontation with people that were sitting about, a t- about two tables away from me. They were younger, a bunch of guys, and they were making racist comments about the waitress and to the oh. waitress. And I got up and I was like, basically, blankety blank, 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 and get your blank and blanks out the blank and door and spoke to the manager. And like people were actually thanking me afterwards. But that's because I am a bull in a china shop at the best of times. <laughs> I do not put up with that kind of crap. Good so for you. Something like that in a restaurant that it's 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 to do with the ambiance in general, like that somebody or something is going on that's really unpleasant. It's. For me, like honestly, like you know, as long as it doesn't have a pulse, I'm fine. Yeah, you have the, you have those customers sometimes that uh, are you know they're loud. Sometimes they call them new money people who who look like yep. they made some money. They're just throwing cash around <laughs> yeah. and they treat yeah. uh, the, the the staff there as servants and it's just dis- yeah. disrespectful, yeah. uh, disrespectful, condescending, and most important, just loud. You know, yep. And yep. looking for attention, which is really I I, I don't like. Wanna... There was some girl in Pearl Restaurant in White Rock, and she was. <laughs> laughing so loud. I could not she enjoy my meal. And guess who it turns out it was. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> she was fantastic, I tell you. There you go. <laughs> Leah, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You, you guys, guys too. All right. See, you. that's Leah Alive. She's a TV reporter and radio host. And of course, Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and a broadcaster. They are part of our rap panel. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.